Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Welcome back to the second episode, Greg, episode number two of Trial and Medical Error. Who would have ever thought that we would get this far in this podcast? So you never thought we would, did you? <laughs> I told you, <laughs> the goal is to get the 10 first. So this is episode two, which is a continuation of our discussion of the Kathy Corsetti versus Trombola auto rear end concussion type case that we wound up going to trial on. So first episode, we talked about how the case came to be, how it came to the office, our impressions, how the case developed and why it wound up going to trial. And so now here we are, it's trial time. Our clients drive all the way up because they had moved down to South Carolina. Again, you need these clients that are going to work hard. They're going to put the effort in. They're going to show up literally. And the Corsettis, to their credit, were game. They practiced like crazy with us. They came up. They were here, present, and there for whatever we needed them to do. So I'll talk about opening in just a minute and my approach to it. But first, Greg, let's talk about you and I try a lot of cases together. And over the course of my career, when I first started, I did not have the luxury to get to try my cases with anybody, let alone try them with somebody like you. And it's just so much more stressful and difficult and lonely to try cases all by yourself. But when you and I first started trying cases together, we kind of had to figure out our roles. And I think it wasn't really until the Miller trial from, what was that, three years ago now, where I think we really, really kind of saw, like understood, like what each of us, our general roles are in trial. So why don't you talk about where we've gotten to and how we approach most of the cases we try together in that regard? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you're more comfortable with cross-examination right off the bat. And you also, I mean, opening and closing is also sort of your forte, although sometimes I'll, I'll take over the opening role. But cross-examination has always been something that among everything else, you truly excel at. And you've tended to rely on me in the past on the direct examinations. I think when it comes down to our, our general practice of law, I seem to be a little bit more driven by the medical mysteries and just spending time burying my nose in the medical mysteries and the medical literature. And you can't get enough of trial strategy and learning from the other greats who do this work and who share their knowledge. That's pretty much how we have evolved. And I think I look at us as very compatible sort of yin and yang in that regard. I think that there are pros and cons to sort of how you and I are both naturally designed that a lot of people can take and apply to their own practices and the way that they try cases. So in a very simplistic way, I would say that you are the brains and you are the detail-oriented guy. You like to get into the weeds. You like to get as far into the medicine as possible to understand it, if possible, you know, why something happened or, and does it, is it really backed up by the science and the medicine and so forth? Whereas I, on the other hand, self-proclaimed, you know, big picture guy. And I, for better or worse, sort of live by that Joe Lovera quote that uh, trial is a battle of impression more than it is logic. But I think that we can 
do ourselves a disservice trying cases to just sort of lazily fall back on that, me in particular. And you need to get into the weeds. You need to understand the minutia of the medicine and the deep, deep specifics of the case and the claims and the causation, especially in the med mal cases that we try, in order to then back out and understand how to teach the medicine and tell the story in a simplistic big picture way that I like to do that helps people make that impression. And then there's the, hopefully the logic to, to back it up. But I think in part, that's why we've kind of fallen into the roles that we have at trial. And I think you're sort of uh, glossing over the fact that when you say you do the directs, you do the directs of almost all of our medical expert witnesses in cases. And, and you did all of them in the Corsetti case. And that's sort of been a role in part because I sort of forced that on you because <laughs> I, A, know you are so much better at working up and conducting direct exams of medical experts than I am because I've seen you do it so many times. And I can remember that moment in the Miller trial. Okay. And I know we're here to talk about the Corsetti case, but when I was going to have to do a direct of our one expert and I was just trying to go through it and I was kind of freaking out. And I just asked you, Greg, you know, can you're just better at this than me. Can you do this? And you did, and, and you handled it brilliantly. And I know we're getting out of order a little bit, but since we're talking on it, okay, can you kind of take us through sort of a, a general approach to how you prepare and think about how to put on direct testimony of the medical experts in Corsetti, for example? So you had Dr. Puskar, you had uh, Rakuto, the vestibular physical therapist, and of course, you had the great Dr. Furman. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of the preparation is trying to really get to the heart of what is going to motivate this expert the most. What does this expert want to talk about on the stand? Because, I mean, we have to remember that our expert witnesses are still humans who, like our clients, are very nervous about going to trial and, and being on a witness stand and, and having to testify in front of a jury. They're afraid to mess up. They're afraid to say the wrong things. They're very concerned about cross-examination in many cases. And, and that's a whole nother issue. We just came off of a trial where it seemed like our expert was primarily, first and foremost, worried about what was going to happen on cross-examination, so much so that we couldn't get him to focus on preparing for direct, but he came around and did great. So that's where I start. I try to figure out what are the pillars that our expert can rely on so that they could go in front of a jury and know that they're confidently offering testimony that's consistent with their belief as doctors, right? And consistent with their true medical opinions. Because the last thing a doctor wants to do and the last thing you want to do as the trial attorney is put a doctor up there who doesn't believe in their opinions and is just going up there to, because they, they told you they would and because they're charging you and they've committed and they can't back out now. No, you, you want a doctor to go up there and it's about their profession, right? It, it's about them individually showing that they're good doctors and that they've properly worked up this patient if they're a treating physician or worked up the case if they're a consulted expert in like in a medical malpractice trial. So that's what I started off with. I try to get to the heart of, you know, what is going to drive, what is the essence of their testimony? And by now, by that point in, in time when we're getting ready for trial, I sh you should know that, right? But it's just important to kind of point it out again and to really wrap your mind around it so that you don't get too scattered into the minutia. 
Well, I really like that. I love that as a starting point because I think a lot of people, I know myself, when I have done directs of medical experts, you get into trial and though you know is not going to be the perfectly orchestrated symphony that you have envisioned and hoped for in your mind, it always turns into, as Rick Friedman said in Unbecoming Traveler, like a, a mud wrestling match, you know, it, it, within the start of the whistle of trial. But I still can't help myself from having that kind of control freak mentality. And when it comes to the experts, what I'll find, and I think it's a big mistake, and I think I love what you just said, that you tried to get to the essence of what they want to say, what, what they feel about the case, because I think it's a mistake. And I've certainly made it on many times preparing experts to try to force onto them what you want them to say or how you want them to say it. And I think that's just a recipe for disaster. And because people generally, they don't, they don't respond well to that. And I think that worse yet, it screws up their testimony because then they're thinking they don't want to let you down. And so then they're trying to say in a way that still works for them, what they think you want to say, and it just comes out terribly and the discussion can break down. And I just think that while it's a very basic concept, it's a huge concept, which you said that starting with, what do you feel about this case, doctor? And helping them understand how to articulate that to a jury. So that's awesome. And so next steps, practically, what do you do with them after you get to that point with them? Well, I guess backing up a little bit, I'll do a pretty thorough outline. And usually that outline will get revised and considerably truncated after I speak with the expert and we meet. We'll meet either in person or we'll meet in Zoom. And there are some experts, like in this case, Mike Ricuto, the physical therapist, vestibular therapist, he had never testified at a deposition, let alone you know, in trial in the past. So he needed a lot of preparation. He was really nervous, but he did an excellent, excellent job because he had that foundation of knowledge. So that was easy, getting him just comfortable with the process. And then it's just talking. I think the meeting that you have with the expert is absolutely critical. And I know one of our mentors, really, somebody who we look up to, Veronica Richards, she has a practice of personally meeting with experts. And I always admired that. And she would meet with those experts wherever they were located in the United States and just sit down with them and maybe even break bread with them. And that's how you really, I think, get to that essence of what's important in the case. In medical malpractice, you should know what's important in your case right off the bat before you file it. But in this case, interestingly enough, we never had the opportunity, or at least we never really took the opportunity to dive too deep in to the weeds with our experts until right before trial, especially Dr. Furman. So with Dr. Furman, for instance, I had this whole idea in my mind of what would be important to talk about based on his report. And as I mentioned in the last episode, he didn't want to talk about anything I had prepared in my outline. He wanted to get to the one record which we hit, didn't even have, this graph. And that was the objective evidence, which you mentioned earlier, was really critical for our case. With Dr. Puskar, do you remember what we learned about Kathy's injury and, and how the interplay between her concussion and her vestibular injury, I knew nothing about that until she explained it to me via Zoom. And then it started, everything started to make perfect sense. And what was it exactly? I mean, because I think that can, people should look out for that and understand how 
a head injury in this particular case, can how these different pieces can fit together. And I think what you're getting at is that kind of not additive, but compounding effect of these two injuries. Yeah, exactly. It was sort of like a vicious cycle as well. You could describe it that way. So Kathy's primary symptoms from her concussion were fogginess. She was tired, fatigue, and headaches. And that was something that she experienced pretty much every day, especially the first part of the day, until it sort of wore off a little bit as the day went on into the afternoon. On the other end of the spectrum, there was the vestibular injury. And as Dr. Puskar explained it to the jury and to me for the first time when we were preparing for trial, the treatment for a concussion is to basically challenge yourself. Okay, but what's going on is your brain is experiencing an energy crisis because of the injury to the white matter and in the structures of the brain. And in order to deal with that energy crisis, you, you have to push yourself. That's the whole point of vestibular therapy is to, to retrain your brain so that it can process energy and do its thing, neurologically speaking, in an efficient and appropriate manner. The vicious cycle comes in because of the inner ear disorder or the vestibulopathy, which Dr. Furman diagnosed. Because Kathy had a balance disorder caused by an injury to the very microscopic elements of her inner ear, she couldn't tolerate pushing herself, whether in vestibular therapy or at home, in the community. And so it made it much, much more difficult for her to overcome the initial concussion. And she went from a situation where it was not just a post-concussion syndrome, but it was persistent post-concussion syndrome that really could not, she could not overcome because of her vestibular injury. So let me ask you this, Greg. We had some of the experts on video. We had Dr. Puskar testify live. What, in general, what's your preference regarding pre-recorded video depositions of experts versus having them come in live? I used to be all about live depositions and resisted Zoom depositions until it was there were no other options really during COVID. And you eventually persuaded me that it's nice to have a mix. If all things were perfect in a perfect world, I would do all live. How about yourself? I, I'm coming around to that. I I love the pre-recorded because of the control factor. You address the depositions ahead of time. The stress levels weigh down because any disasters or problematic testimony that occurred or terrible cross exams has already been addressed. I think the default is, you know, you want your experts in live. But I think that a lot of people overlook some of the upsides to taking some pre recorded testimony before trial. Okay. So we had that uh, big birth injury case we were working on a few months ago that started with some depositions for use of trial ahead of time. And by doing that, you discover some of the cross-exam theories that the, or just defense arguments that the other side is going to raise that maybe you didn't realize as much as you otherwise would have. And if you call everybody live, you are discovering that after you've already given your opening statement, you're already kind of into the case, you've already postured your case a certain direction. Whereas if you pre-record, you get to have the other side show their hand a little bit. And I think that that, from a strategy perspective, can be extremely valuable. On the other hand, I think that the spontaneity of having an expert compared to video is there's no comparison. And I used to say, oh, no, people watch screens, they're used to screens. But having sat through so many different video versus live testimony, 
There's something about the live that's just more compelling to have that person right there. They're able to interact with the jury, look at the jury, so on and so forth. So it's an upside. And I think that's why the default is now, if you've got multiple experts, have a mix. The other thing about having the pre-recorded is that it provides you flexibility during trial. Because how often are we having the judge breathing down our, our necks about how, you know, what's next? What's next? What's the order of your case? How are you going to do this? And inevitably in trial, and especially the longer the trial, there are scheduling snafus that happen regularly. And if you have, well, you know what, Your Honor, we've got this, uh, we've got this deposition of this witness. We can play this now since this witness isn't going to be able to come in tomorrow. So it helps you on the flexibility. So I think that decision between live versus pre-recorded, you really kind of have to weigh them all. And sometimes, I mean, the reality is you don't have a choice. Your expert says they cannot come in live or they insist on coming live and then your decision's made for you. But yeah, I, I think after all these cases that you and I have tried together, I stick with a mix because then you kind of get the best of both worlds. And I do think that if you have a really critical witness, then probably all things considered, it's best to have them come in live if they're going to be your primary medical expert mm -hmm. in person there is probably the way to go. I tend to lean that way too. If I know that they're really good teachers, right? A doctor who teaches a lot of residents or who just excels at teaching us the issues, medically speaking, in a case, that's an asset that you don't really want to waste by having them on video where they can't really interact with the jury. Right. But you do a great job with the video of, and in person as well, of, of using a lot of visuals to help those experts teach the concepts, which you did terrifically with Dr. Furman, for example. Let's pivot back to, we're heading into trial and motions in limine, which is something you always have to think long and hard about. What do we think we're going to be able to knock out entirely versus what do we want to incorporate into our story? So what were some of the motions in limine that you thought were important in this particular case to the outcome that we achieved? Yeah, that one that was uh, critically important that honestly, I, I never really thought we could succeed with was a motion in limine to exclude evidence of a meningioma in Kathy's brain. So when Kathy first went to the emergency department in January of 2020, it is CT scan of the brain, which is essentially normal except for a small meningioma. And that study was repeated. A similar study was performed maybe about a year and a half later, and there was no change in the meningioma. I thought, well, hey, you know, this is mentioned by Dr. Getz in his expert report. They're going to make a big deal out of this at, at the time of his testimony. But you, what was your opinion on it? Well, first, I realized that it, I mean, it was significant because I think we did a focus group and it, I mean, it, it bugged certain people. They were like, what is that? Well, maybe that was causing some of the issues. And then you realize that this is maybe a more important issue because initially it's like, we know medically it had nothing to do with her symptoms. She had had it for years and years and years and years before this without any incident whatsoever. And it was like the size of an eraser tip, I remember. It was, it was just tiny. And of course, though, it's something for the defense to latch onto. And if I remember correctly, there were some pretty incredible suggestions by Dr. Getz that it was in the same vicinity of some parts of the brain that maybe contributed to dizziness and so forth. And I just felt at the same time that if we could get it out of the case, that it couldn't be referenced, you know, that would really help us because it could hurt us with some jurors. So 
the approach that we took was that there was no evidence in the case. There was no medical support. There was no expert opinions provided by the other side or by any of our doctors that the meningioma had anything to do with her symptoms or uh, conditions that she was dealing with afterward. And the defense tried to cross-examine, I believe, Dr. Furman on the issue, and, and he shut it down very strongly. But again, to be able to get it entirely out of the case, I think a lot of judges would have gotten confused on the issue and just said, ah, we're going to let it in. But the judge that we had, the presider of the case, very smart judge, really read the arguments, dug into the medicine and looked at the expert opinions and so forth and recognized the truth of the matter was that this is irrelevant. It's a red herring that could cause the jury to get distracted or confused about the truth of it and that there was no medical support that this had anything to do with her injuries. And so thankfully, but rightfully so, uh, granted our motion to eliminate. And so nothing about this meningioma came into the case, which again, it's just, I think about the cases and not to say, oh, wow, what, what a difficult job we have as plaintiff lawyers. But somebody once told me that for us to win a case, it's building essentially a house of cards. Okay. And, and you have to create this giant house of cards and everything has to be formed essentially perfectly for you to have a chance of winning. And all the defense has to do is literally pull out one card, which could have been the meningioma, which could have been this silly fall or that Kathy got COVID at one point. Maybe that was the cause of it. You really have to dodge all these different bullets. And I think when the defense has many, many just throw things against the wall and see what sticks, there's, there's a cumulative effect to it. And so the more of their arrows that you can remove from their quiver, the better your chances are of getting to a just verdict. So that I felt was an important one that we were able to knock out. Was there another important, any other important motions in Lemonade you felt? Because I felt they, they pretty much all went our way. They did. They did. Oh, yeah, there was. Yeah. So this was important. You mentioned a little bit earlier, we talked about Kathy's professional history. She started Swink Sign Erection Company and American Safety Services, where they controlled the, the safety on the highways during construction with signage and things like that. And through the course of her career, she, she had some business difficulties, some bumps in the road, like we all do. And it really wasn't much of a blemish on, on a wonderful career, but the defense wanted to bring in one of those blemishes on her career. And we were not making a wage loss claim. She had retired from that work many, many years ago. As you mentioned, she was simply helping out as a marketing professional, which she did not so much for the money but for the enjoyment of trying to prop up the business for this dental practice. So we were able to keep that out. And I thought it was important, not so much because I, I thought that the evidence would be damaging in any way for Kathy's case and Bob's case, but because it was something Kathy didn't want to be a part of her case. It was a bugaboo for her. And it distracted her from talking about how the injuries affected her and what she couldn't do in life anymore. She wanted to make it, even after we knew that this would be excluded, she still was worried about defending her legacy, right? And her business reputation for many, many years in the past. And, and it was so much easier for me during the preparation for testimony with Kathy to say, look, that's not coming in. 
that issue about the, your business 30 years ago, that's not coming in. Okay. So let's just focus on what happened after December 30, 2019. That was big. Yeah. And again, my theme, which I will forever talk about, because I just, I truly believe there is so much hidden luck or bad luck in life. And that's not to say that we don't have a great amount of impact on the outcomes of our trials and the amount, outcomes of our cases and so forth and the outcomes of our life through our own agency. But you have to recognize the luck factors. And the reality is, I mean, we've tried so many cases and there's luck in the judge that you get. And I think there are a lot of judges that would not have necessarily taken the time to really try to get to the bottom 100% accurate decision on all the motions in limine. And I think a lot of times what happens, and we've all been there, that certain judges will, the horse trade, well, I'll give you one plaintiff, I'll give you one defense, but there's not really that next level thinking on, no, what is the actual correct decision on this motion? And we had a judge that, that really immersed herself in the motions, understood them, and made the correct decisions. Obviously, we're biased, but they were in our favor. But I really do think that she really thought about that. In that one, she just realized what just completely irrelevant piece of information that it was and would have, again, only caused to confuse the jury. And fortunately, yeah, it was something that Kathy felt that she was going to have to sit there and try to explain and justify and so forth. And it had nothing to do with the case. So fortunately, you know, that got knocked out, which is why you file your motions limited. It also goes to show you, too, that your clients could really perpetually focus on what could happen on cross-examination and uh, get distracted from the testimony they need to give to help the jury understand what they've experienced. So sometimes the judge helps you remove those distractions. Sometimes you just have to pound it out of the client's head. Right. So I'll jump into opening statement. And I think I just love admitted liability cases, which some may find interesting because over the years, I mean, what, Greg, we've been doing this for like 20 years now. And for the first many, many years of my trial career, there was so much discussion amongst plaintiff trial lawyers about, oh, no, the defense has admitted uh, fault just before uh, trial. And now all is lost because I can't talk about all the bad stuff and get the jury angry and so forth. And people just thought, it's so it's such an underhanded tactic and it messes our cases up and causes us to get lower verdicts and so forth. And I could not more strongly disagree with that concern these days, because when you get to say that we are here because the defendant has already been determined to be negligent because they were 100 percent at fault, I believe that that is devastating for the defense. And here's the reason why. Okay. So you and I do lots of focus groups and I have heard so many discussions during focus group deliberations about what people think negligence is. And we try to tell them, oh, it's just not being as careful as, as you should be. It, it's really just not being reasonably careful. Jurors for the most part do not think about negligence the way our civil justice and our jury instructions say they should. What they think about is the way that negligence is thrown around in everyday jargon. Oh, negligent. They think it's almost like a criminal act. I mean, in most people's minds, negligence is tantamount to a crime, intentional, having you know, done something intentionally to hurt somebody. Okay. And that's what can make our cases so difficult to win when we have to prove negligence is in a med mal case, for example, like, oh, you know, it's just 
with the doctor just not as careful as they should have been, honestly, that's not going to be enough in, in just about any medical malpractice case. But in admitted liability cases, when the defense is admitting negligence, we get the benefit now of the converse of that. And we get to tell the jury it has already been decided because of how clear cut the actions were in this case by the defendant that they are 100% negligent. The judge has already decided they are 100% negligent. You don't have to decide that. And now the jury saying to themselves, whoa, I mean, I don't know what exactly happened, but the court has already found this person negligent. Like it must've been pretty bad. And I just think that there's such a benefit that way that when you can frame your case, that's what we do in these admitted negligence cases right off the bat. Opening first line is the reason we are here is because the defendant was 100% at fault and they are 100% negligent for what happened in this case. And what a great way to get people's attention and then get them thinking about, okay, what happened as a result of that? So that's the way that I frame the opening in these cases as a starting point. They don't really need a rule. Then I pivot into what the jury's job is, and I'll put a slide up of negligence, causation, and damages, and I'll have a line through the negligence to show you don't have to worry about that when that's already been decided. So your job is causation and the extent of the losses and harms in this case. And then in a case like this, you pivot into talking about the before and after. You talk about the contrast of what this person was like Here's what you're going to hear about them. Here's what other people are going to tell you about them. To the extent that you need to talk about the medical causation, which was important in this case, we give a preview of what Dr. Furman's going to say, what Dr. Puskar is going to say, what, what Mr. Rakuto is going to say, and explain and show the causative mechanisms. Then you contrast that before and after the person's life. You explain to them what their job is insofar as assessing the damages, listening to the damages. You point out to them that we're not telling them about all this crummy stuff that happened to the plaintiff to get their sympathy. And the time for sympathy was long gone. That was when Kathy got smashed into the back of her vehicle. That's when you say, oh, I'm so sorry. That's really terrible. And then you get into explaining to them that it's not about sympathy, but we've got a job to do. We've got to tell you about all this different stuff because we've got to prove our case. We've got to give you the evidence that's going to allow you to make a fair and just decision about an amount of money that's going to make up for what happened to this person. It's not about what they're going to get. It's about what was taken from them. And it's the fair trade value. Okay. These are all different great terms that we steal from other great trial lawyers, Keith, Nick Rowley, et cetera, unnaturally thrust into real life. I mean, what a perfect type of case to point that out to the jury that this was not God's plan. This was not fate. This was something that was unnaturally thrust into this woman's wonderful life. And that they're going to vote ultimately on what's a fair amount of money. And to vote that way, they have to have the evidence. They have to hear what actually happened to this person, what they were like before and what they're like now in order to vote properly and do their jobs as jurors in our civil justice system. And just reminding of that. And then again, how do you think about it? Ask yourself, okay, if Kathy had this choice and this car is barreling down on the back of her vehicle right that moment and time stops and somebody tells her, hey, this is about to happen to you. And here's all the misery that you're going to have ahead of you and how your life is going to change forever as a result. How much money would you take for that? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how I would submit to you. You should think about how much money her damages are worth in this particular case. And the one other thing I'll say about openings is, well, two other things. So one, 
I've come full circle. There was a time when some of the reptile theory, which I was really into many years ago, they were actually advocating reading your opening statement. And I think the takeaway is that there are many ways to skin a cat in trial. And I have literally read my opening statement before and gotten great verdicts. I've read my opening statement and lost before. But now I think I've come around. I think the connection with the jury is more important than anything. And I think that if you can do it, if you're comfortable doing it as much as you can, you should try to speak without notes when you're addressing the jury in opening. Try to connect with them. I heard something recently talking about the first few minutes, not having any slides, not showing anything, just you and the jury, just talk, and then transitioning into showing slides to capture the visual component of it. I think the more that you can do multimedia, the better. So you talking, you showing slides, you going to a butcher block paper or dry erase board and drawing and showing things that way is all the more effective, entertaining, captivating, and going to help them capture the information. And the final point I'll say before we move past opening statements is I would recommend, and what I always do is I record myself. I get a stand, I get my phone, and I record myself doing my opening statement. And the first few times I do it, it's horrible, it's long, I'm forgetting what I'm trying to say, I'm cringing out, thinking about the way I'm certain things, but I'll force myself to then listen to it in my car, like driving to and from work, and I'll hear where I'm making big errors and I'll, my brain will just naturally just change. I'll go back and I'll record it again and again, and depending on the size of the case, I'll do it over and over and over again until I feel like I'm getting it just right. And it's always better when the time comes to trial, but I would advocate to most people to try to approach preparing for their opening statement that way, where you're hearing yourself give a crummy version of your opening because it's going to reprogram your brain to improve and understand the sections and thinking about your opening of sections, not just as one giant thing, because that can be kind of daunting, but this section, I transition to this section. And then you can kind of break it down into how do you improve that section? Okay, this is the part where I keep stumbling. I'm not saying this part right, because you know you have the other parts of the opening down pat. It's just this part that you then tweak and improve and refine. So those are my thoughts on the opening and how we applied it to this particular case. And I was happy with the opening in this case. The other thing with the opening, I know I'm going on, is that you don't have to put the whole case in opening. You don't have to prove the entire case. You want to focus on what's your best evidence and you want to address and undermine the key defenses. I think those are the biggest things to consider. Stressing and telling a good story about your best evidence and appropriately undermining the key critical defenses that you know that they're going to raise and that they're going to hang their hat on and really beating them to the punch so that when they get up and talk in their opening, they're not saying anything new to the jury that you haven't already addressed. Yeah. And, and what a game changer that is too, which I'm sure others before Keith Mitnick thought of it, but the way uh, Keith packaged it as putting things in context, or as you said, undermining has really helped us as plain attorneys quite a bit. Were there any issues that you needed to undermine in this particular case, the Corsetti case? I can't recall. Yeah. So I think there was the business about her fall in Target. There was her COVID. And I think there was a big one was how she did recover a fair bit. Mm -hmm. She improved a significant period of time. And I think it maybe even said to doctors that she was nearly all better. And then remember her symptoms kind of came back with a vengeance. Okay. The COVID kind of triggered because COVID 
impacts people's brain among other aspects of their body. And he or she had this particular issue. And I think even some of our experts talked about how she was particularly susceptible to having a COVID infection exacerbate or aggravate that condition. Again, not a wonderful argument to make. And it was difficult because that was their argument. No, this was a limited period of time. She was all better. And these subsequent symptoms were because of another condition or another medical condition that had nothing to do with the crash. And we had to demonstrate that, no, this was all a consequence of the original injury from it and putting that in context and explaining it to them. And I think there's also, you have to address in these cases, the lack of, even though we had the objective evidence from the vestibular injury, you still have to address the lack of objective evidence insofar as diagnosing a concussion. We also had to put in context the fact that she didn't get any medical treatment for a month. There was a number of issues that we had to address and bring out to the jury, confront, because they weren't problems. We knew they weren't problems. We knew that they were things that could a clever defense lawyer could use a jury with, but putting them in proper context and actually turning them in your favor, you can actually make some of them help your case rather than hurt your case. So Brendan, I want to ask you about something with regard to the witnesses that we presented in the case and specifically how we went about choosing our witnesses. I will say that leading up to the trial, I was concerned because I thought that we needed to have more of the immediate family testify. Kathy and Bob were really kind of insulated from some of their adult children. I mean, they had good relationships, but they didn't want them involved. And that bugged me because I thought, well, this is really affecting your life. It has to spill over into your interactions in your life with your immediate family, your sons, your daughters, your grandkids. How do we overcome that? And who did we present as witnesses in this case? Well, I think you walk that balance between overloading the jury with too many witnesses and hearing the same stuff. I mean, people don't want to hear the same thing over and over again. So you want to keep these lay witnesses short and sweet. You want to think about who are the people that are really important. You want to think about, are there people that if we didn't call them, the jury's going to have a big issue with that. And generally speaking, I'm actually more the mind of less family members testifying, unless they're truly compelling than more. You have the spouse testify and, and maybe you have one family member that really has a unique or poignant story that kind of captures the essence of the entirety of the injury, but not more than that. And otherwise, especially in these invisible injury type cases, you're looking for lay witnesses as best you can, people from outside the family, people that don't have skin in the game are not going to potentially financially benefit in one way or another. And so we called Bob, obviously, because Bob was actually a plaintiff in the case, though we ultimately opted to drop his consortium claim. So he was a witness. Kathy was a witness. We had Kathy's daughter testify, who had some great testimony about what her mom was like beforehand versus what her mom was like afterward. And then I thought probably our best witness of all was Kathy's boss at the dental office for whom she worked and did all the marketing. And they had become friends. They were actually close friends, but you had that professional relationship and that witness, she was wonderful in expressing what an asset that Kathy at, what was she, 77 years old, was to the dental office, how she literally changed the marketing, changed the amount of revenue and everything that was coming in. And she was just this integral person in the community that was tied to their dental office. And then she gets in this car crash where she gets ran from behind and everything changed. She stopped working at that point. She literally couldn't do it. And there was these amazing pictures of Kathy partying 
with the dental people in, in Las Vegas and at these Christmas parties, like weeks before the crash. And she just looked so vibrant and happy. And, and you could just see the energy in these photos versus was like afterward and literally couldn't do the job. And when she tried to do it again, what happened and so forth. And I thought that that was to me, the most compelling, you know, lay witness damage testimony in the case. Yeah. You mentioned pictures. I think pictures or photos specifically were a big part of this case, as they have been in many of the cases we tried together. And, and I'm sure that's nothing new to, to anybody who might be listening to this and who does this work. However, the photos in this case really helped slam home the point that Kathy was not your typical 77-year-old. And I fell into the trap in this case, especially leading up to trial in the year or so, of really discriminating in my own mind against Kathy because she was 77 years old. And I can't tell you how many times I said, well, how are we going to demonstrate to a jury that all of her problems with mental fatigue, fogginess, dizziness, imbalance, how are we going to demonstrate that this isn't something that just caught up with her because of her age? She worked hard all of her life and now she's just puttering out and this is what happens. And the photos were sort of the antidote, I think, to that discrimination in my mind. And I think they were really compelling for the jury. Not only the photos of Kathy partying in Las Vegas, but there was one which her daughter testified about, which will always be in my mind. And it was Kathy at age 75, along with her daughter, standing on top of their kitchen counters, a counter that is. It was at the home that their daughter had just recently moved into, and Kathy and Bob were helping her move in. Kathy had driven the U-Haul all the way from the Pittsburgh area down to South Carolina, and it was a third floor condominium unit, which required uh, Kathy and Bob and their daughter to walk up and down the stairs repeatedly to move their daughter in. But this photo of, of Kathy and her daughter standing on top of a kitchen counter, putting things inside cabinets, smiling at Bob, who Shouldn't have been taking a photo right now at that point, right? I mean, I'm sure they didn't appreciate that. It was really great. And I think the jury probably loved seeing that and got a real sense for who Kathy was as a human, but more in terms of her health and how very active she was and capable. Yeah. And pictures are worth a million words, I think, at trial, because again, it's objective evidence. I mean, and it also creates the impression that you're looking to create. And I'm not telling anybody new anything new here, but you need to really work hard, not just with your clients, but their family members, their friends. Do you have pictures? Do you have videos? And going through picture after picture after picture, finding the pictures that demonstrate what that person was like that you can contrast with what happened afterwards, which leads me into two other points. One, those photos also crystallized for me one of the biggest damage components of the case because so many of the pictures had to do with the love and joy that she had of the experience of continuing to work at the dental office as the marketing director. And we really turned that into the primary loss of the enjoyment of pleasures of life, that pain and suffering component in the case. Even though we were not making an economic loss claim in the case, we really focused because it was the truth that probably the biggest harm in the case was Kathy's loss of the ability to continue to do that job and the social interactions and friendships that she had with all the people, not only at the dental office where she worked, but out in the community. I mean, there was testimony where she was going up and down the streets and introducing herself to new 
people throughout all of the East Liberty and Pittsburgh in general, and she's putting on these different shows and fundraisers and these philanthropic events, all of which the dental office is associated with. And, and she's just with all these people all the time. And this injury robbed her of that, robbed her of her ability to do that. And that was her identity. Her identity, which is something you should never sleep on in a case, is what is this person's identity? And did these injuries impact that? That's just a huge component that always comes up in focus groups. This person lost their identity. And that was a big way of how we framed her injuries in the case. The other thing that we always try to focus on is we look at the actual categories of pain and suffering damages. So you've got pain, suffering, you know, mental anguish, embarrassment, humiliation, inconvenience is a huge one that I love to focus on cases and loss of the pleasures of life. And of course, disfigurement, if you have that, but inconvenience. I mean, you should always be stressing in cases, how much physical therapy do they go to? How many medical appointments do they go to? How long did it take to drive there? How long did it take to wait to go? How long did the whole appointment take? What did they have to go through in the appointment? Then they had to drive home. The fact that this medical care that our clients need, it becomes this new unwanted job, this new burden for them in their life. And that's that inconvenience component of damages that I think a lot of people sleep on. So never overlook just the new kind of job that your clients get with an, an injury, like the new things that they have to do on a routine basis that they otherwise wouldn't have to do and, and definitely don't want to be doing. But in any case, we really try to find stories, anecdotes from our client, from their friends, from lay witnesses that meet each component of those categories. And if you can get multiple in them, you can do that. And you can even, I've done this before, you create a chart and you've got pain and suffering on one block. You've got embarrassment, humiliation, another. you've got inconvenience, you've got loss of the pleasures of life. And then you list out in the grid next to them, all the different stories and the evidence that you saw that supported that. And you talk about each one and you talk to the jury about that they, as they're assessing the harm and the money dollars that have to be applied to this case, think about each of those categories and how much would they take to go through this? How much would they take to go through that? And that's why we do money. And so I encourage anybody that as you're trying to work at your damages, especially in these pain and suffering heavy cases, and we made the decision to do all pain and suffering here. We didn't want to anchor the verdict down with any small medical loss or smaller earnings loss claims. But in those cases, you really have got to take time to establish each category and stories and evidence that supports each of those categories of loss. Now, you, you really do a great job of keeping those factors in mind. I wait, kind of wait for something to reach out and, and grab me, which is the wrong way of going about things. And you look at the law and then you start using that, you use that as your framework to start to look at the facts and, and you do that really well. So. In terms of witnesses, if I had my way, I would have made it eight witnesses for us and only one for the defense. But as it turns out, it was seven for us and two for the defense. Can you discuss how that came about? Yeah. So let me set this up with a concept that I'm big on called uh, the sponsorship theory. Okay. There's a great book called Winning Jury Trials. It was recommended to me in Rick Friedman's book on becoming a trial lawyer. And so of course I ran out and bought it and read it. It's pretty heady stuff. It gets a little dense at times, but the overall concepts is you have to be very conscious of the value 
good or bad of a particular piece of evidence that you're going to be offering to the jury. Because when you are providing them a piece of evidence, you are moving something, you're, you're presenting them an exhibit, you are focusing on a particular piece of testimony, you're signifying to the jury that this is important. You're signifying to the jury maybe that this is something you need to win the case. And if it doesn't really move the ball forward, then you need to really consider whether you should be calling it at all. Okay. And that's a very simplified version, but there is essentially a a value to every piece of evidence that you use in the case. And you have to think about, especially important pieces of evidence, do you want them in your case in chief or do you either not want them in the case or allow the defense to raise them instead? And so I know you're alluding to, Greg, is that there was a witness who was there at the scene. And remind me again, Greg, what was the pro and con of his testimony? Right. So from my perspective, I thought the pro was that it demonstrated some significant damage to the back of Kathy's vehicle and demonstrated that the accident was also at a high speed because this witness saw the defendant's vehicle pretty much from the time that it merged from one roadway onto the roadway where the accident happened up to the time of the accident. And the witness would talk about how the defendant's vehicle suddenly swerved into, I think, the right-hand lane, the non-passing lane, passed his car, swerved back into the left-hand lane, and then struck Ms. Corsetti's vehicle at the very last minute, barely having applied his brakes. So I thought that was a pro for us. It showed borderline reckless driving, high speed, and significant impact, plus gave us the opportunity to bring in the photographs of the vehicle. And what was your take? When I first, with fresh eyes, looked at the photographs of the back of Kathy's vehicle, I was underwhelmed. And I showed them to a few other people who were kind of like, yeah, I mean, I can see that she was hit. But in all other descriptions in the police report, in everybody else's testimony, it was a high-end crash, the medical records, high-end crash, you know, smashed from behind the defendant driver, the police report said was going, I don't know, 45 miles per hour or something pretty excessive under the circumstances where if you haven't seen the picture, you're imagining a total, just the back of her car crumpled in. And that was not the case at all. And I was very concerned that if we offered that evidence, that it would net hurt us because it would sort of be like deflating the balloon. Okay, that she smashed around it and look at this, and you show them the picture of it, and it's kind of like, eh. So you smartly had taken that witness's deposition, and we could have ourselves played that deposition, which would have shown the pictures and also his other beneficial testimony in our case in chief. And I fought with you, and I kept yelling sponsorship that we don't play that. We don't need it. It doesn't move the ball forward for us. If anything, it's going to potentially detract or water down our case. And as I'm very persistent and overbearing, you were kind enough to capitulate and let us not play that in our case in chief. And we also suspected that our opposing counsel might play it in his. And sure enough, he did. And I think it was a net positive for us when it was played in their case for the exact opposite reason. I don't still to this day know why the defense would have played that deposition because it just didn't help them at all. But I think they wanted to show that the property damage wasn't that bad. 
But the problem they had was that there was a bunch of testimony that really hurt them. That witness said, this guy was driving like a lunatic and he sped right by me and my family. And he almost hit us and I had my son in the car. And, and I was shocked as I saw him fly by me and smash into the back of that vehicle. And then they did show the pictures. But again, that was opposing counsel offering that like, hey, here's the best evidence that we have. And it net helped us. So again, not to pat myself on the back, but I will. I think that was the right call. And that was a perfect example of how sponsorship applies to our cases and how we have to think and incorporate that into the decisions we make of what we're going to use and what we're not. And and look, you have to take risks at trial. And we didn't know if that was, if we should have had an ours or not. This more recent trial, we'll talk about in upcoming episodes. I made some calculated decisions and risks that maybe in hindsight, I would have not, but you do the best that you can. I think that was wise for us not to put that in our case in chief. Yeah. And I think you made the great point, which I'm just starting to learn because you're emphasizing it here and there in different trials, that sometimes what the jury, the picture the jury forms in their mind or the impression they form in their mind from the evidence is better than what some other piece of evidence may depict. You don't want to take away from the impression the jury may have in their mind or the individual jurors may have just based on records, for instance. So going into the closing argument, did you have a theme in mind that you wanted to put forward? I think as everybody should, as the case is going along, and even before the trial, I'm making a Word document of ideas or compelling arguments that I think I could potentially incorporate into closing argument. I'm creating this whole thing. And then during trial, whether it's in the moment or after the day of trial, I'm adding to that sheet. And at the end, I just have this kind of big list of of different arguments I want to make or things I want to point out to the jury. And then you, me, and Maggie Cooney, our superstar associate, all sat down that night before closing arguments and we riffed and we talked about what were the particular aspects of the trial that jumped out the most to us, that were most compelling to us, that we felt were the strongest arguments to incorporate. And I think with closing, you're number one, you're trying to arm the jurors that are for you with the best evidence to support your case and bring in the verdict when they have to argue and explain their position that favors you to the other jurors. Because again, we know for certain that as much as we try as lawyers to put on the best case, put on the evidence, show them that we are right, the majority of the persuasion that happens during trial happens during the deliberation between those jurors. And it's very, very rare that you have all the jurors on your side going in. Okay. I think that's happened maybe once or twice in my career as a, when I won and probably has happened maybe more times when I've lost, but generally there's a uh, gradient of the way the different jurors are thinking about the case. And you need those people that are leaning your direction to have the arguments, to have the evidence to argue and explain to the other jurors that aren't so sure or maybe are against you why they should come over to your side on the verdict slip. So we went through those kind of things from the army and the juror perspective. But the other aspect of it is I think you have to, if you're going to win and you're going to get a good verdict, you just have to go with it. You have to go that you can't argue you're closing for a compromise verdict. I argue as if I'm going to win the home run verdict. Okay. And so part of that is galvanizing people, galvanizing that jury, getting them pumped up to do a great thing here, to stand up and do an amazing thing for this plaintiff, to take care of this plaintiff. Okay. So you have that component of it. 
I think there's another component that depends if you have it, pointing out ways to touch that nerve of annoyance with the other side. Maybe there was some gamesmanship by the defense attorney that you can point out the games that they're playing, the hiding the ball. Maybe in some cases there were reprehensible things that the defendant did or so forth that you can point out and you want to look for those or their arguments or their subtle implications that the defense is making that you can bring out and put on the table and articulate to the jury to get them to be like, this is BS and really see the bogus defense that's being raised and then ultimately explaining away and explaining why we do money for the damages and why it's our civil justice system. And so those are the the different components of how we approach that. And one thing I'll interrupt you real quick is uh, that Maggie helped us develop is the contrast between the experts in the case. Do you remember that slide that Maggie helped put together? And I, I can't remember the details. I'm sure you do. I remember it very well. I mean, it was, I always like having different colors and we basically had Dr. Getz on one side and we had our experts on the other. And I think we had him compared to say Dr. Furman, but it's a neurologist, not a neurologist, doctor, not a doctor. That's the one. Yeah. With a, not a doctor, you know, the transition was very uh, compelling. I thought. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was good and stressing, you know, look, what's your best evidence? Your best evidence is you have a world-class neurologist that's unopposed in the case. You have that, that is showing the jury objective evidence of an injury. Really important information you have to stress, you have to remind the jury of. You have to go through the jury instructions. You have to explain what that verdict slip is going to look like, how they're to look at it, what instructions that they're about to be told from the judge apply to the verdict slip and how to think about that and remind them you're going to hear this in just a moment. Remember this. That bolsters your credibility. It shows you know what you're talking about, but it also restresses those key parts of the jury instructions that the judge reads after closing before deliberations that you want the jury to remember and resonate with them. I thought a couple of the arguments that I think some people could carry over into other cases was one of the arguments they made in the case was that Kathy's symptoms were in part due to old age. And I thought that was a very disingenuous argument because there was zero medical evidence before this crash happened of what, that she was having any issues. To the contrary, she was a dynamo at work and she was loving and living life. And I think that we pointed out to them that what they're really saying is that, Kathy, you're not hurt, you're just old. And in Allegheny County, old people don't get justice, which I, to me, I felt was a very just powerful kind of gut punch when you thought about that. And, and that's really what they were doing. They didn't say it in so many words, but that's what they were implying. And I think a lot of times when there's implications, you have to put them bluntly on the table and call it for what it is. And that was certainly one of the themes that they were trying to insinuate in the case. I think another very powerful exhibit that even one of the jurors told me was effective comes from that Kaposi book, The Domino Theory. Mm -hmm. And you can just do a very simple, you can do it on the butcher block paper, you can draw it in the moment, or you can have a slide pre-made. And and in our case, it's wonderful because we had a woman that was 77 years old. And so you draw this line and the line before the crash is her life and that there were no symptoms. She had none of these symptoms, none of these problems beforehand. And then you have the crash, you draw that line, you put the crash on there, And then you show and you list all the different symptoms and all the different problems and all the different medical care that developed after and has been going on ever since the crash. And you point out that what they're trying to say is 
coincidentally, these injuries, these symptoms over here, they just happen. They just developed, okay? Because of misfortune, time, age, whatever. And you say, just a big coincidence. Ladies and gentlemen, you can use common sense and you can see visually what this was. This lady went her entire life without any of these problems. And then she gets crushed from behind through no fault of her own, has this unnaturally thrust into her life. And all of this happens afterwards. And then you just pose a rhetorical. What do you think makes more sense? What do you think was the cause of all of these injuries and symptoms, medical care and life-changing events that Kathy's had to live with ever since? And they have the answer right there in their mind. It's just that there's that combination in closing. Like I don't have necessarily a set closing. I mean, I'll have parts that I'll talk about, like an opening intro. I'll do sometimes a variation of the ball closing. The jury has three jobs. I've seen uh, Joe Freed and uh, Michael Goldberg do a variation of like, it's like justice and something else where you can kind of talk about liability on the one half and then damages on the other part of it. But I think big issues are you have to cover the verdict slip. You have to help the jury understand what the verdict slip means, how to use it, how to check it off, how to think about it, talk about the damages. You want to get them motivated to do a great thing here. You want to get them, if you can, a little ticked off at the defense, if there are things to get ticked off about. And you want to help them with understanding why money. And there's a, a variety of arguments there, and we can talk about those in future podcasts, but just helping them and point out that meeting them where they are, you might have an objection or it might be kind of gross to you to give money for somebody's injury for human losses. But let me tell you the reason why we do that. We do it because we're a civil justice system. When people started this country, they said they wanted to be different. You know, No more barbaric justice, no more eye for an eye. We're going to be civil. And what's the most civil way that we can do it? We can bring people in from the community, listen to the evidence, and then they can assess in money dollars what's a fair amount of money to make up for it and tie it to the Constitution and help them understand that to do their job, they've got to follow the law. And the law says that it's money to make up for what's been taken for this person, not a penny more, but not a penny less. And then there's a variety of different arguments that we can talk about in future episodes Mm -hmm. to help the jury understand why they should uh, give money. So Greg, why don't you Tell us what the verdict was, how it broke down, and I'll talk briefly about the deliberations, and then we'll wrap up. Sure. The verdict was $900,000, and it was pure pain and suffering. I think it was what? Was it 400, 500, or 300, 600? I can't remember. Okay. But certainly a far cry from the $75,000 offer that they never moved off of, and it was great because Kathy was rightfully vindicated. I think the just the fact that the jury found in her favor to that extent, meant more than, than anything. It meant more to her and Bob than, than the money, quite frankly. That was awesome. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll never forget Kathy uh, you know, turning to me after the verdict was read. <laughs> the first thing she said was, is that good? <laughs> <laughs> right, that's very good. The last thing I'll just say, a couple of things that I, I spoke with some jurors afterward about the deliberation. And the way that the number came about was that Foreman gets in there and suggests that everybody write down privately an amount of money that should be awarded for past pain and suffering and an amount that should be awarded for future. So everybody writes it down, folds it up. Foreman takes them all, writes all the numbers down on a board, adds them up, divides by 12, and comes out with, if I remember correctly, $800,000. So the range of potential verdicts was something like $25,000 all the way up to like four and a half million. Okay. And then everything in between. And it averaged out to something, or maybe it was two and a half million, something like that. And then they had a a deliberation, a discussion. And this is what took up most of the time 
where there was a certain group of people that were very for us that felt that it should be much higher than 800,000. And then there was a certain group of people that said, no matter what, it should not be over a million dollars. And eventually they got to $900,000. And I spoke with the foreman and he said, you know, for us to get to a million or more, I'm not sure we could have ever gotten there with some of the people, but it would have taken a lot more time than anybody was prepared to go any longer with. We thought that 900,000 was something that everybody could live with as fair. And that's how that number was arrived at, which is something to keep in mind as far as, I don't know if that's the worst way to, to, for a jury to do it. How do you get 12 people to agree on anything? And you may want to consider in your own closings as that's a potential methodology for the jury to give them some guidance to help them do their job. You may consider anonymously everybody writing down how much they think and then averaging it up and then having a discussion. Should it be more or less? And is that fair and why? I like to attribute the verdict being close to a million dollars on the anchoring that Kathy's daughter did in her testimony. And I think this would be the first and maybe the only plaintiff's trial uh, or trial in general where the anchoring was through 1 million linear feet of Jersey barrier. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I thought it was a little awkward when Kathy's daughter remembered to remind the jury that at the time Kathy sold her business of safety equipment, safety signage on the roadways, they had 1 million linear feet of Jersey barrier. So we had nothing to do with that, by the way, right? Yeah. In preparation, we had discussed that issue. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, that segues into an important concept that in Pennsylvania, we're not allowed to ask for or suggest a specific number in pain and suffering damages. But there are cases out there that stand for the proposition that you can make comparisons to items of great value and find other ways to tangentially reference large amounts of money and certainly million dollars of Jersey barrier, if that connects. And I mean, look, you and I have seen it firsthand that anchoring is incredibly powerful. And if the right type of anchor strikes an accord with the right jury, it can be eerily effective in the number that they come up with. I don't think that had any real bearing on what happened in this case, but I think you have to try and find a way to provide an anchor number, at least in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, to help your clients get fair and reasonable compensation of the verdict. When I think back at the, the really favorable verdict that we were able to achieve for Kathy and Bob, you know, one thing I think about the trial is that we just, we really controlled the story throughout. And we did, we had seven witnesses to their two, but arguably you could say that was eight to one because of the witness, the eyewitness to the accident who had a lot of favorable testimony for us. So I just think we didn't repeat things. It was a consistent story throughout the trial. And that's that's all the jury heard. They heard about Kathy. They didn't have to see the repentive defendant, sympathetic defendant who was older, get on the stand. It just call it luck, call it good fortune. But to the effect, you, we can recreate that in other trials. Obviously, you can't control what witnesses the other side is going to bring in. To control the story like we did in that case was definitely, I think, a key to success. Totally agree. So let me wrap up with one of my trial tips of the day, which I used in this particular case. And again, I don't know how effective it was ultimately. It may have. It may have anchored. And that's the thing with anchor is, is you may anchor some of the jurors, which can help you overall, especially if they're putting numbers in and they're averaging them up. Then there's some higher numbers out there that's only going to help pull up your number for your client. But 
in this particular case, you know, we had an older woman, 77 years old, and it's a perfect scenario to use uh, Keith Mitnick's argument about that not all time is equal. And you point out that when you're young, you want time to kind of fly forward. Time doesn't mean very much, but the older you get and the closer you get to death, the more valuable all the time is and the more stock you take in, in your time and what it means to you. And it's just literally more valuable. It's more valuable because of scarcity. It's the, the less of something there is, the more valuable that it is. And, you know, and then you pivot into, and that's why they call it the golden years. It's literally those moments are, are gold. And then you transition into, and this is my little variation of that we live life day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute. And Kathy had in her life at 77 years old, you'll see that the life expectancy tables say that she has, I don't know what it was, eight or nine years of life expectancy at that point. And that was such and such amount of minutes. I think it was like 3 million something minutes that she had 3,552,000 golden minutes mm. left of her life that the defendant, through no fault of Kathy's, that this was unnaturally thrust into her life, has forever tainted and impacted. And she will never be able to get those magic minutes, those golden minutes of her life back because of what this person did as a result of just not being as careful as they should have. But of course, you know, the idea being finding a way to, within the rules, put a number out there that might plant somewhere in someone's brain to help bring back an appropriate award. And I want to say before we close, I put those numbers out there because I believe in them. You know, as I got into that case and I knew the impact of what happened to Kathy, I personally feel that her injury and the way that this impacted her life was worth way more than $900,000. And so when I say those numbers and I put those anchor numbers out there, I mean, I say them because I believe them. I mean, to me, it just kind of like speak to me that this is the number that to me would seem sort of fair. And it's always going to be higher most frequently than what the verdict winds up being, but you got to believe in it. It has to resonate with you. And that number did for me. Well, I mean, if they are pure golden minutes and we're talking over 3 million, they're actually worth a lot more than that for pure gold. Agreed. So, right. Maybe you shot a little too hot. <laughs> so on that rich note, we'll wrap up episode two and uh, wrap up the Corsetti trial summary. And thanks for listening to Trial and Medical Error Podcast. Until next time, Greg. All right. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal in catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.